0: Hi Story Seeds podcast listeners, your host Betsy Bird here, welcome to our bonus episode. One of my favorite parts of this job is that I get to talk to all the authors we are featuring on the podcast to get behind the scenes scoops on their experiences in writing life. By now, you've heard Bill Epp and Keshav's collaboration on the story Not By The Hair In My Chili Pepper Den in our last episode, and I'm really happy to be talking to Bill today. Now, Bill is the author of the picture book The King of Little Things, which won the 2014 Pan America Prize for Picture Book Writing. He is a national touring storyteller who has recorded 14 audio story collections, many of which have won awards of their own, He travels around the country, entertaining kids and adults with his funny tall tales. He's been a featured storyteller at the National Storytelling Festival, the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, at many schools, and dramatic pause. He is also a five-time champion of the West Virginia Liars Contest, which is a thing, and you're going to hear a little more about that in this interview. So I am very pleased to be able to talk to him today. Bill, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. Not a problem. So, Bill, as it turns out, you apparently know one of my good friends, Carmen Agra Didi. I do. Uh, she recommended you for this show. She said you were one of the funniest people she knew. And she, uh, when she heard uh, Keshav's uh, story seat about the cow and the bunny and the wolf and the fox, uh, she told the folks on the show, she said, you have got to work with my friend Bill. So, I have to ask you, what? sparked your interest in Keshav and his story seed, which was basically this sort of comical, fractured fairy tale?
1: Well, I think that's what what did it, was the fractured fairy taleness of it. Um, a lot of the stories that I tell on stage, almost all of them I've written myself, and uh, they are not really fractured fairy tales. Most of them are tall tales that I, sort of Appalachian-based tall tales that I've created out of whole cloth but mm-hmm. they resemble I, I deal a lot with twisting the way we normally perceive things and turning characters around so they're not who we expect and and those sorts of uh those sorts of tricks and so the way that keisha had put this story together i just thought it was a really fun uh kind of coming to the story the 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 three little pig story sort of through the back door with a whole new perspective. And that was really exciting to me.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, now, have you ever collaborated with anyone in writing versus have you ever collaborated with anyone in your storytelling? Either one of those, have you ever collaborated with anyone before?
1: No, this was, well, I shouldn't say no, (laughs) but this was mostly my first collaboration. And um, I've written a couple of things with my buddy, Andy Offit-Irwin, who is a uh, storyteller and a songwriter. He and I have written like three songs. And so I guess (laughs) I have collaborated in that way. But Andy and I get along and are sort of of one mind. So we don't have exciting collaborations where we hate each other afterwards.
0: (laughs) Well, I I take it. He's not a kid either.
1: Oh, no, he's a full grown adult.
0: Well, there you go. That that That's an entirely different thing than what you just did. So That's true.
1: But yeah, this yeah. was working with Keshev was the first time I've really sat down with another author, writer, storyteller, and plotted out how we wanted the characters to react with one another and what we wanted the different personalities to be and how we were going to do all of that in about five minutes worth of story.
0: Mm hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Now one thing I sort of noticed in the course of your conversation with him was that you brought a lot of your storytelling sensibilities to sort of the way you tackled his story. So for example, you ask yourself what an audience might think in the course of a tale. And you said something that like really struck with me that the difference between telling a story and having a conversation is that when you tell a story, the audience can't ask you questions. So you have to anticipate what they might want to ask. Now, Can you talk a little bit about how being a storyteller affects being an author?
1: Sure. And I I should go back and say that if I'm telling in a first grade or kindergarten class, nothing stops them from asking questions (laughs) while I'm telling the story.
0: That
1: is an excellent point. Yes. So when I'm telling a story in front of an adult audience, they generally don't ask questions. Um, So as the storyteller, and I think as the author as well, you have to you have to look at what you're putting together and think about what you're taking for granted. That might be something that you just assume everybody else knows. And you have to make sure that it's clear enough to your audience, what it is you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the big differences between writing something to be read and writing something to tell out loud is that I get to see my audience as I'm telling this story that I've written. Again, almost everything I tell I wrote myself. And so It's a really neat experience to watch people react positively to the stories that I've put together. Whereas the things that I've written, the books, um, you know, it'd be really uncomfortable if someone were reading one of my books and I was standing there watching them. I think it would be weird for both of us. So one of the differences is just the reaction, the immediate reaction that I get from speaking a story rather than having someone read the story.
0: Well, okay, so here's a question for you then. So let's say you're telling a story. You're telling it some way. Do you alter the story depending on how the audience is reacting to you ever?
1: Absolutely. I've never told the same story the same way twice. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of my stories, most of the stories that I write, when I write stories, I try and write them for as wide an audience as possible. hmm and so I have stories that I can tell to a group of third or fourth graders and then also to college presidents later in the evening. <laughs> and it's the same basic story and I get a lot of the same reactions, but I do change the language a little bit, emphasize more things with the adults than I do with the kids or other things with the kids than I do with the adults. So th- I definitely change the way that it's told. And you know, my book, The King of Little Things, is in print, I think maybe 750 words or 800 words, something around that. Mm -hmm. The oral version, which when I wrote The King of Little Things, I never it it didn't cross my mind. It could be a book. I wrote it as a story to tell out loud to people. Mm -hmm. So the written version is probably I mean, the the original version of the story, the story that I tell is probably anywhere between 15 and 3000 words. So it has a lot more room because I'm on stage and not confined to the 32 pages of a children's book. You know, I have a lot more room to expand on things and to, to illustrate verbally what it is I'm trying to say.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense. It's funny. I would think that, um, when you're telling a, a story to a, a huge audience, you got some of them sitting there and they're like, "Well, this is a great story." And other people might be like, Ah, "I don't care for that one." Another person might be like, "You know, what happens next?" Whereas when you're writing a book, there's really just one person who's got a reaction that's going to matter when it comes to coming out in print. That's the editor to a certain
1: extent. <laughs> so that is true.
0: You're going from pleasing large crowds to a single human being with their very own quirks and and strange uh, preferences,
1: whatever those might be. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I don't collaborate with people. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was working with the editors was a, a whole new, a whole new experience for me. I have been very fortunate to be able to do what I do for a long time now—thirty, almost thirty years. I guess I've been doing this, and I have total creative control over ninety-nine point nine percent of what I do, and so I, I do when i When I do have to collaborate, unless people just agree with me, <laughs> it does kind of rankle sometimes
0: well, that was something interesting with your, your talking about this story that you were collaborating on because you actually even brought up what things might look like in in one place or another
1: well I, I think because I have to tell my stories generally out loud, I have to know what the scene looks like. Mm-hmm so that I can describe it enough for my audience to to picture it. I mean, everybody's gonna picture it their own way, but if I know what it looks like in my head, I, I, I'm at least confident enough that I can somehow express that idea, whether it's orally or physically, uh, to get my audience to get some image of the idea. So I almost never write a story without thinking what it looks like. When I'm telling one of my stories, I see them running in my head like an old Bugs Bunny or Road or a Runner and Coyote cartoon.
0: <laughs> so getting back to the story, I guess, uh, at hand. So I hear you got to meet up with Keshav at the Jacques Torres uh, chocolate to help him grow his story seed. How did going to a, a chocolate shop work its way into your story at all? I mean, what did you learn there that you incorporated into the story?
1: Well, of course, part of Keshav's original idea was that one of the characters lived in a chocolate house. This was a bunny Mm -hmm. who wasn't the Easter bunny, but lived in a chocolate house. And that's how we ended up at the chocolate shop. But we talked a lot about the different kinds of chocolates, as you just mentioned. And that's, again, part of my process. If I'm going to write about anything, I do a lot of research on it so that I have sound like I'm at least a little bit of an authority because one thing I've learned in my career is that if there's one or two people in my audience even they're already smarter than I am. <laughs> so I always make sure that I have at least some sense of what I'm talking about. And then I do a lot with puns in in my stories. I play a lot with language. And so we were talking about the process of making chocolate And the different kinds of chocolates there are and the different places that chocolates come from. Just every aspect we could find out from the chocolatier. So that that could help us with little jokes, kind of sub-jokes throughout the course of the story. And then we did the same thing when we were talking about the cow and cheese and milk and, uh, and the fox and the peppers. So that all of those things could maybe sort of be the pillars that the story was standing on. And then, of course, we found out that you had pepper-infused chocolates. And peppers and chocolates were two of the biggest aspects of k original idea. So then we had to go with that. Which, by go with that, I mean we had to eat the chocolate-pepper candy that was there.
0: <laughs> I'm amazed you didn't just go all the way with all three. You had some chocolate ice cream with hot peppers in there. I know that exists somewhere. That would have been the ultimate combination of the three.
1: I'm, I'm sure it does, but <laughs> there was... There was no ice cream at the store. Oh, and I think man. I think it was February in New York, so it wasn't really an ice cream day.
0: Yeah. That's a that's a chilly time and a chilly place. Yeah. I could I could see that. So uh you know, going into this story, you, you didn't have a lot to work with. You had a really simple structure with a fairy tale kind of feel, but man, you just got into the details of it. Like you particularly the structure of the three delicious houses. So How did you flesh out those house details?
1: Well, that was part of the conversation that we had at the chocolate shop, too, is I wanted to make sure that, one, I knew what Keshav wanted, and two, I wanted my audience to have as uh, colorful as an image of these different dwellings as they could, and then to use puns and plays on words and twist the language around as much as possible. So... Mm -hmm by using the different aspects and, and just the different things that we, you know, associate with milk or with chocolate or with peppers, um, to build those into the actual houses was just a, a great way, I thought, for the audience to really envision what these different houses look like.
0: No, I liked it a lot. So one thing that sort of struck me was how you grounded your story with this kind of fantastical interior logic, whether it had to do with what kind of house the animals had constructed or where the story was set, if it was in a cold place or not. And then it kind of could go wacky from there. So how do you construct a world where it makes sense within the limits of its own nuttiness?
1: The easiest way to do that is to start a story by saying, once upon a time or a long, long time ago, anytime we hear that phrase, we've been trained since we were just little tiny babies, That once you hear once upon a time that plants and pots and pans can talk and anything magical can happen. Mm -hmm. So we started the story. I forget exactly how it starts now, but something like way up high on top of the Himalayas, even above where the sages and the wise men go. So it immediately puts us in a world that's still on Earth but beyond what we normally experience. And I think when we, as readers or as listeners, hear that, our brain immediately goes to, uh, opens up what I call the context box, and it's inside the context box, I think, that we allow ourselves to suspend to suspend disbelief so that we can have an emotional reaction to things that uh, we know aren't true. So somehow you have to open that context box with the reader. And again, the easiest way to do that is, you know, once upon a time or a long, long time ago.
0: I think I'm going to have to steal your phrase context box. Uh, that's just too good an idea. Okay. I think it's completely true. <laughs> that's excellent. So you've got a YouTube channel where you've been doing stories and a podcast called quirky children's books. I can't get published, which is that's something right. I definitely, definitely need to subscribe to. So do you have uh, a joke or a, a super short story you can you can tell to me right now that sort of typifies your sense of humor and, and what it is
1: you do? Well, one of the stories on my podcast is the three billy goats who just don't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like we, the title already. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because we all grew up with uh, the three billy goats grew or some version of that story. And so here's mm-hmm. these three goats that live on one side of the creek and they want to go to the other side of the creek and there's a troll in the middle and the troll wants to eat them and they all outsmart the troll. Uh, in my story, all three of the goats dislike each other and so they're each trying to talk the troll into not eating them but instead eating one of the other trolls <laughs> so that basically they can get all the grass for themselves on the other side. So those are the sorts of things that I do in my unpublished children's book. So that I, I don't do that so much on stage, but that's... And then another one is uh, Humpty's Dumpty, where somebody's having a conversation about Humpty Dumpty, but the person on the other end of the conversation misunderstands and thinks he says Humpty's Dumpty as though the Dumpty belonged to the Humpty. <laughs> and there is a long discussion as to whether the Humpty is the Dumpty or the Dumpty belongs to the Humpty.
0: <laughs> so, uh, okay, one more. I-, I hear you've got a story about when you were a preacher. And you met this old lady and it involves chocolates in some way. Mm. Can can you tell me the story?
1: Yeah, I was a pastor for about four years and I was in a little tiny town and there was this one little old lady who I had to always go visit. She was a really great woman. Her husband had died of cancer not too long before and he was a great guy. And so I was just going on visits to check on her and probably, I don't know, once a week, twice a month. Anyway, she had chocolates just all over her house. But they weren't new. These were (laughs) gifts that she had gotten, I don't know, 30 years ago. And had decided to keep in a closet for a rainy day. And so they had that, when chocolate gets really old, you know how it gets that sort of white dust all over it? And I didn't know what was what. And a lot of them had the awful fruity nougat or whatever that is inside the chocolates, which I really don't like. So I was at her house one day and she offered me chocolate and I couldn't say no. So I pretended to eat it and, uh, then I was just holding it in my hand, but (laughs) I looked down about five minutes later and there was just chocolate running all down my hand, down my elbow and onto the chair. (laughs) I don't know how she didn't see it or maybe she did. And she was just (laughs) laughing at me, but yeah, that was one of the awful moments where I thought I was getting away with something and I definitely wasn't
0: (laughs) chocolate will out. It will. Oh. All right. Well, just to back it up a second, and we're going to get to your life story in a minute here. Uh, but you were a preacher and now you're a storyteller. And both of them require you to stand up in front of big groups of people. And in both cases, all those people need to find you the most interesting person in the room. So can you give the kids listening some tips on speaking in front of groups? Because I know that when I was a kid... It just riddled me with fear when I was young to the thought even of speaking in front of a bunch of people. How do you, how do you do it?
1: I have always loved speaking in front of large groups of people. I don't know <laughs> what about my personality makes that so, because I know for a lot of people, it's the scariest thing in the world. But I just, I, first of all, I just really enjoy being in front of an audience. The things that are most important though, are you have to be loud and fortunately I come from a loud family. We don't, my wife would tell me and my kids, you know, use your inside voices. And I finally had to tell her, honey, we don't have inside voices. So I've always been able to project. You got to make sure that the people in the back of the room can hear you. You got to talk to the back wall, however the big the room is. And then you have to know what you're talking about. I know that sometimes that's difficult because when you're in school or something, the teacher gives you an assignment and you have to write a Paper about the country of Australia, and you don't care about the country of Australia, and then you have to say it out loud. No <laughs> offense to Australia, by the way. Uh, but then, so you know, you get up and you're like, Australia is a country, it is a continent, it is an island, it's in the ocean. People live there. <laughs> well, that's not terribly exciting, but that is not unlike a lot of fourth and fifth graders' public uh, speaking skills. So know what you're talking about. Find some way. If you have to get up in front of an audience and talk to an audience, It doesn't matter if it's the most boring subject that you've ever encountered in your life. Take the time to find something about that subject that's interesting and focus on that. Because if you're interested in the subject matter, your audience will be interested in it too. And then you have to have confidence. You have to know what you're saying and kind of know why you're saying it. So if you're interested in what you're saying and you are confident in what you're saying, then your audience will be interested and, and confident also and you guys will work together to do a great public speaking because when you're a lot of times people think that you are talking at the audience but you're not talking at the audience you're talking with the audience as we've discussed earlier storytelling public speaking in general is a conversation if i was just talking at you then uh it's it's like me kind of talking at a wall but if i'm looking at my audience and watching their reactions and seeing if they're smiling or frowning or crying or doing whatever they're supposed to be doing, then I can sort of adjust my tone or my body language or whatever it is to go along with the audience. So be confident, know what you're talking about, and talk with the audience, not at them.
0: Well, that sort of leads naturally into my next question. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're the winner of a a Pan-American Award for your picture book, The King of Little Things. But longer than that, Before that, you've been an oral storyteller. Can you tell me how that came about? What's your story?
1: Well, I come from a family where nobody ever told the truth. (laughs) And it wasn't malicious. It's just the way the lips are. It was always up to the listener to decide whether or not something was true. That was just understood in our family. So if you wanted to say that, you know, my grandfather told me when I was a little kid that he had ridden with Lawrence of Arabia (laughs) during the First World War. And he was... he was in that part of the world at the time he spoke uh Arabic, so I believed it probably till I was i don't know nine ten years old and then I realized he was kidding and I told a reporter that later in life and she put in the newspaper that my grandfather had ridden with Lawrence Olivier so now we have <laughs> that going for us too but our family has just always been exaggeration and uh Stretching the truth has just always been an acceptable form of conversation in our family. So I grew up immersed in exaggeration. And I always wanted to be a writer. Ever since I was probably in the fourth grade, I wanted to be a writer. But I found out that it's very difficult to get people to read things that you've written. So in about 1986, my older brother Paul entered the West Virginia Liars Contest which is a contest designed to perpetuate the art of oral history and Appalachian culture. You win $100 and a golden barn shovel. (laughs) And I watched him do that for about three years and thought, you know what? I want to do that. And so I sat down and I wrote my first story that I wrote to tell out loud. And I spent about five months, not that long, maybe four months learning that story so that I could tell it out loud. And I got up on stage and I did it. And I won second place. And so what I learned through that, children, is that if you write something, people might not read it. If you learn to tell something, people have to listen to you unless they can outrun you. So <laughs> write it, learn it, and buy a snazzy pair of running shoes.
0: Well, how'd you turn that into a, a career then?
1: Totally by accident. 100% by accident. Uh I didn't know that there was any storytelling outside of the West Virginia Liars contest. I did it for the first two or three years. I mean, I would get invited somewhere to uh, one of my very first paying gigs. I was at a buckwheat pancake festival, (laughs) and I had to stand on a milk crate, and there was a microphone that was attached to a record player. That was the entire sound system, (laughs) and I told stories as people went through the buffet line. So nobody had time to listen to my stories as I was telling them, and therefore nobody was listening to me. And I got $100, and it only cost me $110 to go and do the gig. So I thought I was really, you know, cashing in. (laughs) So I did the Liars Contest for, I think, about eight years in West Virginia. And then somebody had a storytelling festival in West Virginia that was mostly storytellers from West Virginia, but they invited a guy named Ed Stivender who's a storyteller out of Philadelphia. And Ed is a professional storyteller. He's the first professional storyteller that I ever met. And it's the first time I knew that that's a job you could do. And then Ed is just, he's an amazing storyteller. And when I saw Ed, I thought, man, that'd really be fun. But more importantly, Ed saw me, or I guess more importantly, Ed heard me and he liked what I did. And he gave my name to the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, and in 2000, I got to do a 15-minute spot at the National Festival, and it really went well, and things just sort of took off after that, and by 2002, well, 2003, storytelling was my full-time job, and I've been doing it full-time ever since then.
0: Huh. And then how'd you uh, transition that into writing? Did you like to write as a kid at all, or did the writing come much later?
1: No, I always wanted to be a writer, uh, and I just—I I wasn't very successful at writing as an author. I'm not a very good writer, it turns out, that I'm, I have great story ideas, but I can't spell, and I don't know where to put a comma to save my life, so I, I had a very difficult time getting things to the stage where someone might publish them, and so once I figured out that I could write whatever I wanted to as a story and then tell it out loud... That seemed like a much better option than having to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. pass it through a bunch of people who were going to judge it before I could ever get it out to the public. So it's really been great for me because I get an idea, I write it down, I learn it, I get up on stage and I tell it.
0: Oh, yeah. And that is totally true. So, of course, you've got a podcast of your own. Do you do stories on your podcast?
1: Mostly, I've only been doing my podcast since since the quarantine started. And my son, <laughs> my son is 19 and he saw a meme that said, no, or all men between 18 and 45 years old should resist the urge to start a podcast during the crisis. <laughs> uh, and he said, I was okay, though, because I'm outside of that age range. So <laughs> people have been telling me for a long time that I should do a podcast. I like to call it a pod show, by the way, just because it annoys people. Ooh, I like that better. Yeah. And uh, so I have all these books and I'm trying to do stories on my facebook page or my youtube page just tell stories so that people can my fans can come and watch me tell stories but it's weird sitting here in front of my computer telling stories uh to no audience at all and then i started doing stories on the facebook or on my youtube page that are stories mm-hmm. i hardly ever tell on stage and that's when i ran into all these children's books that i've written that haven't gone anywhere and i thought now it's the time for a podcast that's what people are aching for and uh, there's only I think I put my fifth one up there today and the longest one is six minutes or seven minutes so there's not a ton of material on my podcast but it's golden as far as I'm concerned <laughs>
0: well, that's good now let's say you've got a kid kid wants to tell stories but they don't they just don't even know where to start they're like imagination is in neutral they can't they get stuck they can't get it to move How do you get your imagination to think up stories to tell, whether you're saying them out loud or writing them down or, you know, what's what's a what's a strengthening exercise for the imagination muscle there?
1: One thing I do is just reimagine how stories we already know could be different. As I talked about at one point in this show, the three billy goats who don't like each other. We drive, you know, driving down the road, you see a couple of cows or a couple of horses in the field. And I think our tendency is to assume that they're best friends. But what if they're not? What if those two poor horses have been on that field together for 20 years and they just can't stand each other? <laughs> so then I take that and I apply that to the three billy goats gruff. Maybe they just don't like each other. Or what if instead of pop goes the weasel, it was pop, you know, then an exclamation point and then goes the weasel. So the weasel actually explodes right? There's a great idea for a story. So I like to take things that we already know and reimagine them in my own bent way. And then I listen to, I eavesdrop all the time. I hear people's conversations. And I think to myself, wouldn't that be a great story? I heard a guy several years ago when the cicadas came out, he said that the cicadas were so bad this year that the bats were getting fat. (laughs) And I thought, what a great idea for a story. If you have all these bats that eat way too much and then they can't fly, so they just plop down on the ground. And of course, you know, this is where my brain starts to go with that. Bats, they have legs, but they're not for walking, they're just for hanging upside down. And of course, a bat's wings are actually its arms. And so you'd have all these big fat bats crawling <laughs> across the ground using their arms, and then they'd have to hang anywhere they could until they lost enough weight to fly again. So what if they climbed up onto your car and they grabbed onto the underside of your car and then when you drove off, they waited till you got going fast enough and they'd spread their wings and then they could fly. So my point is, uh, if you're having trouble with your imagination, just uh, feel free to rewrite the world any way you want to write it. Go ahead and twist things around. Look at them from a different angle. Look at a story that you know really well you know, like, say, uh, Little Red Riding Hood. The grandma, the wolf, the woodsman, and the mother. And so we know pretty well what happens in that story with the woodsman, the grandmother, the wolf, and Little Red Riding Hood. We don't know anything about what happens with the mother except she says, go visit your grandma. So find a character like that that hasn't been explored and tell the story from that character's point of view. So that way you already have the story written. You already know what happens in Little Red Riding Hood. But if you write it from a different character's point of view, then you start to see the story in a different way and you can imagine a whole different way of going at it.
0: Ah, that's good advice. Actually, some uh, writing advice that you gave to Keshav was to uh, to always continue challenging yourself and to know that your original idea might not be the best one. Yeah. Now, can you speak to that a little more? Give some advice about how to take a, a story seed or an idea and sort of refine it?
1: Yeah, that's one thing I've definitely learned in in my writing career is that I might have an idea and I, I think to myself, man, that is genius. And I sit down and I start to write it and I find out it's not going where I want it to go or it's not as funny as I thought it was to begin with. And so then you have to go back and look at it and think, what if, what if, what if. Now, one of America's greatest storytellers is a guy named Donald Davis. And Donald tells true stories or he says he does. And, uh, his, he says, I'm going to get back to your question in just a second, but I'm going to divert here. Uh, Donald says that when you get ready to write a story and you can't think of anything, if you're having trouble with your imagination to think of a time in your life when you did something you shouldn't have done or got in trouble. Uh, for example, did you ever cut your own hair? He rattles off a bunch of examples. Did you ever cut your own hair? Did you cut your little brother's hair? Um, did you ever pull out all the chemicals underneath the sink and pour them in a bowl. He says, take an incident when you did something that you shouldn't have done. And then you can write a story about that. And you don't really need imagination because you already know what Donald classifies as the four P's, the people, the place, the problem and the progress. So, you know, who is involved, you know, where it happened, you know, what the problem was. And by progress, he means, what did you learn from all of that? So if you take an incident that already happened, um, you know, you don't have to use your imagination a whole lot and then you can just move. So to get back to your question, uh, Donald says the difference between his stories and my stories is that Donald tells you what happened, but I ask, what if? And so my stories present the, uh, this is the plausible thing that could have happened. But from there I go to what would make this story more interesting or what if this happened instead? Uh, So, you just got to keep going back and going back and going back and finding what the good stuff is and what the bad stuff is and working on the good stuff with the idea that you might be departing from your original idea, but you might be on a much better path.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Well, last question for you. Ready or not? Here it is. All right. When you are making a story, uh, whether you're writing it down or whether you're, you're coming up for with a new one to tell, uh, what are you? What are your habits? Do you, do you get up early? Are you a night owl? Do you do you snack while you come up with it? Like, are there any? Are there any things you do to help you make up a story?
1: I am the worst possible person to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. They're probably because you know I know authors who write a thousand words every day and Mm -hmm. or before breakfast or whatever their ritual is and i tried that for a while but i just found out that i was generally writing a thousand words of junk every day and it wasn't worth my time (laughs) so i wait Uh, i have all these ideas bouncing around in my head i like to think of it i know it's not this sophisticated but you know there's that thing in that mountain in france where they they put different particles in it and they send them around the inside of this mountain at like light speed or almost light speed. And then the different particles crash into each other and we find out things about science. (laughs) I like to think that's what's going on in my head. Um, That I have all these different ideas that are just floating around and some of them are more solid than others. And some of them are more pointed in a a direction. And sometimes it's just a character that I want to use. Like I have this idea for a character and all I know about it right now is that she's the sort of woman who knew how to have a bad time. <laughs> and so she's up there, right? I can't let that go. So she's up there flowing around my head. And hopefully, just for example, she is going to crash into another idea that I have in my particle collider in my brain. And when I feel that crash, uh, then I know it's time to sit down and to start writing. And then when I get that idea, then it's difficult to drag me away from whatever I'm writing on. I write a lot with pencil and paper, or really a pen and a paper. I carry a notebook and a pen with me everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Uh and so I, I I write a lot or or often. It doesn't always go anywhere and it's not routine. But when I get a really good idea, then then I might, you know, then I might be at my computer or at my notebook for fourteen to sixteen hours a day. Uh eating occasionally my wife will occasionally remind me that I should eat something, um, drinking coffee and uh really delving into it and that might last working on that story anywhere from a couple of weeks to six months so i don't have a routine i don't have a, a a way to tell you that you know or to tell anyone that this is the best way to write but i don't think there is a best way to write i think all all, all good writers discovered their best way to write on their own and that could be the total opposite of some other really great uh, author well
0: <laughs> well said well said. Well, Phil it is just a pleasure uh, having a chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for speaking with me today and, and answering all my questions.
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to this. I have to admit that uh, until I created my own pod show the other day, I had never listened to a podcast before. I've enjoyed this process so much from the from the original uh, uh, contact that I had with, with all of the people that, that put Story Seed together and then going up to new york and meeting k-shev and his family was great and of course we had a great time at the chocolate shop so this has really been a pleasure and thank you guys so much for involving me
0: no problem thanks for agreeing to do it yeah we worked out so well well folks that's all for today subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast streaming platform so you can tune in as soon as our newest episodes drop if you have a stellar story seed and want to be on the show email us at storyseeds@literarysafari.com. You can also call our hotline at 646-389-5153 and leave a voicemail telling me all about it. Find us on Instagram at story seeds Pod and visit our website www.storyseedspodcast.com for behind-the-scenes pictures, to join the Story Seeds Society, and so much more credit to Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio for the sound mixing, design, and score of our bonus episode. Our theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Van Weingarten, and I am your host, Betsy Bird. Story Seeds is a Literary Safari Media production. On Story Seeds, you're in control of your destiny. Adventures you design where your dreams can grow. A little more each
1: time on Story Seeds